Greetings and salutations, our wonderful listeners. Welcome back to Life and Books and Everything After a Summer Hiatus. We are back. I don't know if I can say we're better than ever, but we are back. And I'm joined by Colin Hansen and Justin Taylor. And it's good to have the band back together as we are going to spend some time today just catching up a little bit on the summer. We'll talk about things we may have seen or listened to, maybe hit on a few current events. And of course, if we have time, we'll talk about some books. So glad that you're with us. Looking forward to this next season, which will stretch here at the end of the summer through the fall, Lord willing, until the end of the year. And uh, it'll be the three of us, and sometimes it'll be one or two of us and interviewing others, but we're looking forward to at least the three of us getting to chat and maybe some people listening. We are sponsored again by Crossway, so grateful for their partnership and the many good books that they put out. And we want to mention one today near and dear to our hearts, Rediscover Church. And it is co-authored by Colin and by Jonathan Lehman. Colin, tell us a little bit about this new Crossway book, which you have co-authored. So this book has actually been in the works for a long time. Jonathan and I have been talking about a basic book that you could give to anybody in your church to be able to introduce them to what happens in the church and why it happens that way, God's vision for the church. But that vision was really renewed with what we saw last year with COVID-19. And of course, it's ongoing here. And so we've talked about this since our podcast began. I really haven't seen any situation like this in our churches. The, the division, the tension, the exhaustion that we feel over racial issues, political issues, COVID, now vaccines after masks, on and on and on and on and on. And this book we're hoping is going to be a way that church leaders can help unite their congregations around the gospel of Jesus Christ and God's vision for the church. And so we cover everything about outreach to membership, to discipline, to the ordinances, to all that kind of stuff. And so we're, I mean, we're excited about that. We think the timing is is right. We also deal with things like virtual church and live streaming and things like that. But um, we're excited about that. But I think one of the coolest things is what Crossway has done to get behind this book, uh, working along with TGC and with Nine Marks. And so between today, August 16 and August 30th, uh, Crossway is going to be sending 20 copies to every church that requests one. There's a way to find that through Crossway's website, through TGC, through Nine Marks. And um, yeah, just free of charge. They will send you, you send in your information. They'll send you 20 free books, physical books. We're also translating the book right now into 20 different languages because this is a shared situation uh, around the world. So yeah, it's been in works for quite a while, but it's really, really exciting right now. And and so while supplies last, um, up to, I mean, it's pretty amazing to say, but Crossway's generosity uh, means that up to 400,000 people will receive free copies of this book. It's pretty, it's pretty amazing. So thanks to Crossway and excited to see what, what God might do with the book to help churches. And Crossway really is generous. And uh, no, there's lots of good people doing good things, but I'm always impressed by how Crossway really does want to think of ministry first and above all else. So thank you. And uh, thank you for you and Jonathan working on that book. There, there's a lot of things we can talk about. And as we're recording this, and I imagine this is still going to be the case in the next day or two, whenever this comes out, but Afghanistan is all in the news. And this is not a podcast where you you tune in to hear us uh, pretend to be experts in foreign policy, but uh, such a tragedy unfolding in real time with the persecution already underway, it seems, and certainly threatened of Christians and churches, not to mention women and children and uh, others who sided with the U.S. government over these years. We're not here to try to sort out foreign policy woes, but I just wonder at the outset before we move on to other things, since this is uh, front and center right now, if there are thoughts, uh, lessons, 
or even just ways that you think we can be praying for the church in Afghanistan? Anything as we get started, Justin? Yeah, we are called to pray for the persecuted church, to pray for our brothers and sisters in Christ. And of course, we're called not only to pray for fellow believers, but for the world that those that everyone would be able to bow the knee and uh, confess with their tongue that Jesus is Lord. So this is a great opportunity for us to pray, um, a great opportunity for us to love our neighbor, even our, our spiritual neighbor who is far from us. But what an unmitigated disaster. It seems like these days there's such difficulty finding any common ground politically on the spectrum. And this seems to be one of those rare events where no matter where you are on the the political scale, you can agree that this is horrible. Um, you know, whatever your views on interventionism and just war, etc., the way in which this came about and the way in which we carried out this policy um, is just producing large-scale disaster and tragedy. So our hearts should go out. We really should uh, lament and weep with those who weep and uh, it's a helpless feeling, of course, as just an ordinary citizen. It's not like you can cast some vote that will change things right now or um, do much of anything, but praying is something. And sometimes I, I find myself saying that, that sort of thing, like, I wish I could do more than pray. But prayer is something that we could do that uh, other people can't do. Uh, they don't have the resources uh, spiritually to appeal to the living God to act on their behalf. So let's pray. Let's keep our eyes open and uh, keep our hearts tender towards what's going on there. One of the things that it does throw into stark relief is how many blessings we have in this country, whatever faults and failures. And in the last few years, everyone from every angle has had plenty of things to be critical about in this country. And yet you see, now I know to be better than the Taliban is a pretty about as low a bar as you can have. And yet you see that civilization as we have come to know it in Western prosperous, basically free countries is not the norm throughout history. And it's easy to think that the civilizational default is human rights, fair elections, transfer of power, um, a criminal justice system, which which bends and has imperfections, but um, works most of the time, and rule of law and due process and religious toleration, all of these things that we can think if we're ignorant of history, you know what, if you just sort of leave people that that's just what happens. And that's not what happens. And it's important for us to remember whenever we're criticizing the form of society or government we have now, which we're right to do, but we always have to ask the question, compared to what? Because if the comparison is perfection, utopia, heaven, well, if everyone were angels, well, we can look forward to that as Christians in heaven, but that's not the alternative. What is the alternative compared to what? And certainly things can be, there, there, there's a there's a big sliding scale between Western democracies, uh, constitutional republics, and the Taliban. And yet, hopefully, maybe it will help all of us to, one, appreciate many of the blessings that we have and have had for many, many years, and Lord willing, are extended to more people and more people now in this country, and those freedoms will be protected. And it also shows us sometimes how our you know, there's there's that joke, throwaway line, first world problems. You know, I've, I've people have said it to me. I've said it to my, my my kids as they're complaining about their shoes wearing out after three months or something, and they need new shoes. First world problems, but it really is the case that sometimes, and I guess Ross Douthat might call this a cultural of culture of decadence. But the sort of things that we get animated about, the sort of things that we think are life altering absolutely soul crushing. And then you see the Taliban, you, you realize just how horrendous and egregious and sinful and as many bad words as you can pile up, um, humans can be. And it gives us pause not to exaggerate 
our own suffering, our own offendedness, and also hopefully leads us to give thanks for the many things that we do have, even as we we pray, most importantly, as Justin has called us to so rightly. Any other thoughts, Colin, as we get started? Yeah, a lot of times my my instincts are to think about the political ramifications of something. I wonder, what does this mean for elections? I wonder, what was the Trump administration thinking when they negotiated? I mean, that's where my mind goes. But this is a different reaction for me this time. And I'm not I'm not sure why. I just noticed my my attitude about things really changes as I get older. And one of these areas is I and it may change by the time this podcast comes out, but I just wonder where is our president? I I, I want I want to hear from the commander in chief. This is not a political thing. I want to know I want to know what's happening. I, I want to know that somebody is I want to know that the soldiers that we've deployed there are not going to be surrounded and and cut off. I mean, there's there's a lot of questions there. So for me, it, it, I'm not my instincts in this case, even though I, I wonder about those things, it's not primarily about what does this mean for Republicans or Democrats or Trump or Biden or midterm elections or reelections or what are the Republicans are going to challenge Biden? What are they saying? And so if, I just wonder as an American, I. I'm, I'm worried. I'm not I'm not worried for my personal safety. That's a luxury that you just talked about there, Kevin. I'm not worried for my personal safety, but this is this is disturbing, um, and I'm just worried for those those people. I I I watched Ken Burns' Vietnam documentary, and I was born. You know, we were all born after Vietnam, and so just watching the way everything played out with the end and the fall of Saigon and everything. And I guess it just confuses me for, for people like president Biden who lived through that. I want to know what's going through his head as he sees this and what his plan is. So I, I hope that comes across the right way, but I, I just, it's, it's concerning. I, I wonder where is the president? Yeah. So please, um, I'm sure more information will be out in, by the time this is out there. But Justin's absolutely right that praying can feel like a throwaway, but it's absolutely not. And God hears those prayers. And we are commanded to pray for our persecuted brothers and sisters. And just sharing the bonds of humanity, of course, we pray and don't want anyone to be tortured and the sort of absolutely horrendous terrorist activity going on. So we pray for that. I want to back up, and there's no great transition from that, but this is the first time that we've been doing a podcast for several months, and we've had the the summer, and uh, won't get the blow-by-blow, blow, but we all like sports, and that's some of our listeners, and so you can be patient if it's not your thing, but I know we were texting last week with the Field of Dreams game, so there was the movie back in 89, and it's... Uh, it, it it's a movie about fatherhood as much as about baseball, but it is a sort of a strange movie, but it's a tearjerker and it's become sort of etched in the American pantheon of movies, I guess. And so many years in the making, they had this game right next to the the set where they, they filmed this in Dyersville, Iowa, first major league baseball game, Yankees and white Sox. I'm a lifelong white Sox fan born on the South side of Chicago Great outcome for the White Sox. Now they went on to lose two or three of the Yankees, but we don't care about that. Uh, they blew the lead, came back, Tim Anderson. <clears throat> great script. The ambiance was, I mean, I, uh, I am not a crier, so I didn't literally cry. It wasn't like when, you know, I wept tears over Miley Cyrus's career direction. No, I didn't. I didn't actually. But uh, but I, I was watching it, and for a Dutchman, I was I was I was getting the the feelings. I was getting moved and it was overwrought, but it worked and the music and the Kevin Costner stare and I felt like and and I tweeted this, uh, I felt like maybe there was just a little glimmer, a glimpse of some some piece of Americana that we could celebrate. There was nostalgia, but it was also looking to the future. You have teams that are filled with white and black and lots of, lots of Hispanics and Dominicans, and you have uh, a great ending to it. And it just, it felt like something that everyone was excited about 
urban meets rural and a simple fun and let alone that Iowans were there. So I, I loved it. And uh, it was nice to see something that seemed like just grown men playing baseball. They, and that's sort of the spirit of the movie. They really seemed to think this was really cool. And to hear Joe Buck say, and another one into the corn. I mean, it was a <laughs> great tagline to see them. And did you hear that they had to go in after they'd had a storm and they put metal rods in the corn out there <laughs> so it would look proper? I mean, well, well done, MLB, and well done, Iowa. Justin, I can't believe you fled your own state to Chicago when this was happening. Yeah, I've never been to the Field of Dreams, and I don't really like baseball. So um, I'm a great uh, one on there. I actually got a text, I think, from Kevin saying, like, how can you be out of town? Because I went to Chicago yeah. uh, during that and uh, didn't know that it was coming. But, yeah, Dyersville is about four hours exactly east of here on uh, Highway 20. And so I could drive by it at some point and get all the nostalgia and cry <laughs> like a Dutchman uh, upon <laughs> a view of corn. Be to hold. You're really killing the vibe here, Joe. Yeah, I think you Kevin. Are. You're, you're, you're think, what's wrong with America. Didn't I you think... listen to James Earl Jones? Baseball. I do. I mean, one of my thoughts was it would be great to age as well as Kevin Costner has. That would be kind of like on the. We all do wish we were movie stars and had yeah, those looks true. and those resources. Even he 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 had the untucked T-shirt. I don't know if it was an official untuck it. They can be a sponsor, but it. I mean, it just it just looked good, and I just think, yeah, I, 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 our midwestern flair would not carry as well. I'm afraid. <laughs> Did you enjoy the spectacle? Well, I mean, I I think our I love our listeners. Love hearing from you guys. You guys all know that we we're midwestern guys, and and um. And it does have a special resonance. I mean, I, I played, I played baseball surrounded by cornfields uh, growing up. I, I played baseball. I played football with with cornstalks flying in our faces and things like that. So there's going to be a special resonance there. And especially also, I mean, I'm, I was eight years old uh, when Field of Dreams came out, and I, I rewatched it recently. I don't think I was even thinking about this. But that movie hits you completely differently as a dad. Yeah, it does. Completely differently as a dad, especially when you're when your kids are playing baseball and, and thinking that way. And um, yeah, so I, I I I just I was really impressed with what they did. The moment of them walking out of the corn. Oh, really was, well done. That was pretty was pretty darn cool. And and I'm like you, Kevin, in that I thought of it as as kind of a, a template for some things that can work if we're trying to figure out a way to move forward in unity, because no one wants to go back to that time of the early 20th century for a, a variety of reasons. We, we want things the way they are in terms of the, the people who get to play. I was just at the Negro leagues museum in Kansas city this last weekend and how exciting to see Aaron judge and Tim Anderson be heroes in that game. So nobody wants to go back to that part. And yet there is something that we can recover from the past that is unifying and is beneficial. And part of that's the continuity of the game of baseball and the inclusiveness of baseball now, especially as it spread and, and the way it comes in and, and it spread to a place like Japan of all places. And, and I think that's something that's worth celebrating and building on. And I'm just at a stage of life when I see something like that, I'd put the Olympics in the same category. When I see something like that, I want to celebrate it. I want to appreciate it for what it is. I want to just enjoy the game. And I don't want to try to pick it to death, which by the way, is a good way to watch the movie field of dreams. Do not right. think about it too much. No, <laughs> Do not try to be logical about it. And that, that's just kind of similar here. I want to appreciate it for what it is. And I want to start dreaming about, wow, what if they came to America's oldest ballpark, Rickwood Field in Birmingham? What if they did a game there? That'd be great. Anyway, so that's what I was thinking, Kevin. Yeah, I think there is the, the, the if there's any way in which we have some semblance of unity as a country and healing, to use that term, 
it 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 seems to me it has to be in not trying to move back to the past but but not telling people you have to eradicate the past or and hate shame the past. on you for for hating it and so yeah. I I showed you an article that somebody had written that was more largely negative about the event and and his whole argument was we're celebrating an event that celebrates a movie that celebrates a baseball player who comes from a time in major league history when African Americans weren't even allowed to be in the same integrated league. Well, that is true factually, and we can lament that. And yet that seems a profound mistake to me and no way to move forward to essentially say a movie because it has Shoeless Joe Jackson as a central theme and it comes from an era um, where America was racist and that segregation and baseball was not integrated. Therefore, anything from that gone, shame on you. I mean, the, the logical implication of that is untenable, unworkable, not just rationally, but just from the human spirit. You can't just say that that part of history, you can't have it. You can't like anything from it. You can't celebrate anything from it. We have to be able to say what is good, what is good, but still imperfect. And But we're not saying let's get in the time machine and go live there and everything was great if we could just be back with, um, you know, Charles Comiskey, who seemed to be a horrendous person as he was the owner for the White Sox. So I, I enjoyed it, especially as a Sox fan in the home run. But you mentioned the Olympics. Justin, Colin, I watched tons of Olympics. I, it's one time, say, I'm, I'm, I'm not... I'm not going to feel bad. I'm going to turn the TV on, let my kids stay up. We're going to try to watch as much as we can. Um, what were some of the high points for the Olympics for you guys? Justin, did you watch it? Did you know it was happening? I don't know. Were you paying attention? Did you see that? I knew it was happening, but I'm like a terrible co-host today for these topics. Because I hardly watch <laughs> I thought you like sports. You're just on like Huskers 24-7. He did, he, he's been just – it's just Huskers – and Justin Fields. Those are the only <laughs> things that Justin Taylor cares about. So you didn't watch the yeah. Olympics. You didn't pay attention to anything. I, I hardly watched it. It was interesting to see somebody speculate on Twitter why the uh, ratings were so terrible for it. You know, Is it because of cord cutting with people not having cable anymore? Is it because of the time differences? Is it because of knowing in advance if you wanted to know who was going to win or lose? Uh, was it some of the no fans. protest elements? Yeah, no fans to it. I mean, just changes the dynamics. I know you really enjoyed it, but it just kind of felt like work to be able to go and find it, watch it, invest in it. So I didn't watch very much at all. Um, to my to Kevin's chagrin. Shame on you. All right. You well, missed... from the Russian Olympic Committee to Colin. <laughs> that 400-meter final. I mean, how the amazing. Hurdles. Yeah, Both the hurdles. Them. Thank you. Men yes. and women. Yes, exactly. Thank you. I mean, I, I, I'm i not going to pretend. I'm not like Kevin. Kevin and his, and his kids, I mean, who actually know running, do this, and are good at it competitively, read the magazines, all that sort of stuff. I'm just your, I'm just your show up and, whoa. There's a guy from Norway who's really good. Oh yeah, he's been good. Yeah, Carson <laughs> I mean, Warholm. Okay, well that that that's fascinating. But also, oh, but gosh, but wait a minute. So he breaks the world record, but so does the American. Right, Benjamin. Yeah, exactly. It was just absolutely amazing. And I think um, I don't know if it's because of COVID nineteen. Again, I don't know if it was because I have kids, but I have a a greater appreciation for sports, which seems kind of crazy that I, I would people who know me, including you guys would know that I love sports already, but I really cherished being able to see all of the, the human stories, the, the competitiveness, drawing the best out of people, rising to the occasion, improving themselves, pushing the boundaries of what's possible. But also I, I felt like there was generally a lot of, um, a lot of camaraderie, among the athletes, um, even within rivalry, including uh, with Warholm, uh, there, there still seemed to be, I mean, there, you could tell there was clear rivalry. But at the same time, there seemed to be respect and there was there was pushing. And so, 
I mean, typical for where we are as a country right now, everything was obsessed with Simone Biles and, and a few, I mean, nothing wrong with Simone Biles being obsessed with her. She's great. Um, But just the, the, her decision, I think it should have been an, an opportunity for us to just talk about how, how we shouldn't take these things for granted, how fragile it is mentally and physically. And again, this is something probably because I get older now, I'm struck not only by the people who succeed, but now, and by the underdog stories, but now I'm struck by the, by the people who fail mm-hmm. and, and the parents who are there and all they've invested and the devastation, especially with the Olympics every four or in this case, five years. Yeah, sometimes a false start or oh, a, exactly. a, a slip or a drop. And you've been working the agony. Yeah. The agony of defeat seems to stand out for me than it used to. And I'm, I'm not so much judgmental, including in a Simone Biles case. I'm just more sympathetic of like, wow, you work so hard every day. So much has been invested into this for this one moment. And then it doesn't happen. It helps you appreciate greatness because you're able to see how fragile it can be, even with the greatest of all time in Simone Biles. Yeah. Yeah, when I um, we, we won't talk about the the day that Kevin DeYoung tried to break the internet on accident, <laughs> but uh, I was on vacation and the timing was bad. I didn't know all that was going to happen on the same day, but when I tweeted, then a couple weeks later, and yeah, you know, I just trying to make light of it and said, "Did I miss anything on the internet?" And I did see that somebody wrote or tweeted at me and said, "Well, basically." Um, half of the country is really mad at Simone Biles right now. And the other half is really mad at you. So that was, and the, they're different. They didn't overlap who was mad at Simone. Uh, yeah. So I, I, Justin, once you figured out the schedule, if you would have looked up the track and field schedule, you could have got the exact start time for every event, Justin. And you realize that the timing was actually pretty good because the evening events in Tokyo aired live here, Central Time, from about 6 in the morning till 8.30. And then the morning finals aired about 8 to 10.30 in the evening. And so we were able to watch it. Um, swimming and track are the ones that we watched almost every second that we could. What was your highlight? What was your, what was your favorite part? So because, yes, we are a, a bit of a, a track and field, we, we know, I'm not person, but we know all the names we follow. We, we're going to watch the Diamond League. I'm sure this, there's a whole track season out there, folks. The Diamond League uh, in, or it's the Prefontaine Classic out in Oregon this Saturday. You can see Shakari Richardson's going to race the 100 against the three Jamaicans who won Lots of good people still race. So we follow this stuff, and uh, there's certain of the American Olympians that we've really come to like. So I, I, a thing Mo is amazing, 19-year-old. Wow. Uh, Southern Sudan family immigrated, but she's lived almost or maybe her whole life in New Jersey. She is amazing. Um, yeah, the 400 hurdles on the women's side, Sydney McLaughlin who acquits herself very well and seems to be giving a, you know, wonderful, credible profession of faith and glory to God in the midst of this. And Delilah Muhammad is really professional about it. So I love watching the two of them as they go back and forth and break world records, almost anything. And some of the, I mean, and the swimming side, Caleb Dressel is the, you know, uh, on the male side, the American who wins almost everything that he's in, but he hadn't won an individual gold. And when he did his first, here's this big, huge hulking sort of guy and he's just a flutter of tears and, but of joy. So that was even moving to me to see the genuine expressions of joy. And as cheesy as it seemed at first, you know, they would set up a little screen and you would, you would see your family um, back home watching you and to see on the Olympians immediately when they saw their family or heard their family or their hometown cheering for them, just tears and joy and how much it meant to have other people and their family who couldn't be there in person. Those were, you know, those were touching moments. So I enjoyed watching it and I would have to imagine the ratings are down for all those reasons, Justin, people just, it's not, it's not like 
even 20 years ago, okay, everyone click on NBC and let's watch this. You have, it's diffused across several NBC platforms. It is, unless you go looking, it's sort of hard to tell where, where can I find what's happening live, what's going on. And people just have, it, it does take something away of the energy of you're all cheering. I mean, you could still hear, you know, a handful of people in the crowd. So I'm, I'm always sad when the Olympics go, the winter Olympics just, yeah, I mean, that's something, but a lot of people just flying down hills of ice and let's shoot things and ski around. But it was, it was great. I enjoyed it. Okay. Uh, we should ahead, mention, though, that I, I saw on Twitter that they're talking about making cornhole into a, an Olympic <laughs> sport, true. which for, you know, Midwestern middle-aged guys, there's a, there's a wave of hope sweeping sweeping across the heartland right now. Well, I told you that my one of my sons, how old is he? Twelve, said, "Dad, I think they should make spike ball an Olympic sport, and I don't think we need horse trotting." Hey, dressage. That was pretty cool. That was I one mean, of the highlights. Uh, that was one of the like highlight clips in there. I, I will I will say anybody who doesn't think cornhole is an Olympic sport, which okay, um, it, it, watch curling. Tell me how curling, really get is curling. All, is all that different from cornhole and with the same demographic of people who <laughs> seem to succeed in it. <laughs> yes. What we, is Jim Gaffigan's line about smoke about uh bowling? If you can smoke while you're doing it, it's not really a legitimate <laughs> cornhole, you know. Probably. Well, it was what's it Boris Johnson's line a few Olympics ago that that when the UK was winning he said, we really excel at sports where you're sitting down <laughs> because they looked and they were good at, you know, rowing and cycling and anything that involved, you can remain seated. The UK, the Brits were really good at it. I wonder just that uh, this could be a whole podcast unto itself, but in Colin, you've already weighed in publicly, at least on one of the episodes, but I know like many people, we've all been listening to the, the rise and fall of Mars Hill podcast that Mike Cosper is doing and uh, doing very excellently. Um, what are your quick takeaways? Um, what do you like about it? Things you disagree about it? Justin, what do you think? Yeah, like many listeners, I'm riveted to it and can't wait till the next one comes out. And I hope that's kind of like kind of like life and books and everything. I imagine <laughs> if we're a, if we're an hour late, people are just boom, just all over us online. By the way, I've had two female friends say to me independently, "Oh, I love your podcast. Uh, I fast forward all of the sports parts." But so welcome back to uh, they're, the listeners. They're going to love. They're going to love they're this. They're going to love. Yeah. It's hey, well, they over. didn't get my soliloquy to corn about yeah. how many wonderful things we owe in life to corn. Okay, we'll do that another time. Bonus, bonus episode. Bonus. Yeah, we should uh, do this live from the Corn Palace in Mitchell someday. But... <laughs> the Enchanted Doll Museum nearby. <laughs> Blizzards at the DQ across the street. Oh, yeah. That's right. Now you're talking. Uh, rise and fall of Mars Hill. It's, um, I think for the three of us, it's not an academic, abstract, uh, arm's length thing to listen to because all of us knew Mark at some level and had some involvement in the, the movement that he was a part of. So it's interesting to listen to something that you actually, it's not you know, ancient history to us or um, listening to, you know, a podcast on the Jesus people where we didn't have any intersection with any of the players. So it's, it's sad. And it's, um, as you said, Kevin, Mike does a really good job, just apart from content, the, the narrative flow of it, the fact that you can actually listen to people, you know, this could have been a, a serialized um, set of articles, or it could have been a book but to actually hear Mark's voice and to hear other people talking about their experiences. Uh, it's, it's very, very interesting and it's very sad. I think especially when you put together things that have happened over you know, a couple decades and compress them together to hear some of the outlandish and abusive things that he said, kind of play those back to back. Uh, I think in terms of, 
judging how the whole podcast holds together, I kind of want to reserve judgment until Mike's able to complete the whole thing because he's going somewhere and he has more episodes planned. So, and people are dissecting it on Twitter. You know, why, why isn't he talking about this? Why hasn't he interviewed this person? And so we'll want to wait to see kind of where he's going here and uh, what sort of angles he's going to cover in the future. But yeah, as you said, Kevin, we could devote an entire episode just to talking about this podcast. Colin, your quick thoughts. Yeah, quick thoughts. So I, I, a couple different things. One of them is that if you're looking at this from a Christian media perspective, which we're all in in different ways, but I think we're going to see a before and after this podcast. Um, this will be revolutionary in terms of mm-hmm. Christian media. When you're one of the top four podcasts in the entire world, which this is, that's that's quite a that's quite a statement. And so I would say this is probably the biggest phenomenon I've seen in Christian media um, in the last eleven years. So since Veggie Tales, yeah, since Veggie Tales, <laughs> exactly. So so this is a big deal um, to be able to show people within a Christian space the power of narrative podcasts. So we're going to see a lot of imitations of it that are not going to be nearly as good. I do think that. This is a perfect storm. It's a perfect storm of Mike's abilities with Christianity Today's investment in it, with that particular story, which Mike knows really well uh, personally, which it gives him a lot of ability there. The timing that it took to be able to do this and also the, the broad appeal to people outside the church of all different kinds of traditions to former angry, you know, grew up evangelicals, disenchanted to reformed guys like us who want to know how it how it plays out, who lived with it. So really just a, quite a phenomenon. Second, I will say in the church, in some ways, it's going to be before and after this podcast because just a wide scale, we're talking 600,000 plus listeners on this thing. The wild, wide scale listening of it at congregational levels, elders, pastors, means that this is going to be in the in the ether as people think about leadership in the church. And so I don't know quite exactly what all the implications are going to be, but it's certainly going to contribute to probably a very healthy skepticism towards certain types of leadership that we've all seen tolerated too much. But it's it's going to have some bad effects as well in terms of of bringing heightened skepticism toward proper abuse uh, uses of biblical authority um that that's one thing so we'll it's it's that kind of a a big deal but one last thing just to say is so many people i see them really wrestling with these things for the first time because they just didn't know this stuff um of course we we've known a lot of this uh for a long time and so You'll see a lot of people, and we've seen a lot of people talk about the need for a reckoning in the church. I would actually say that it's not like this podcast is introducing these concepts or forcing this. That reckoning actually started, as far as I can tell, in 2010. So this reckoning has been going on for 11 years um, in terms of people like us talking with, debating, praying about, arguing over the implications of all of this stuff happening and the other situations that, you know, that could be the could be the fodder for future podcasts. So I don't I hope that actually comes as an encouragement to people. But this is not like, oh, yeah. And then for a decade or something like that, it just sat dormant. No, I actually had a lot of people spending a lot of time trying to think about the implications of this. I don't know what you guys think about that, but that's one thing I just, I hope people yeah, know. Yeah. Uh, uh, I'll just give a, a few quick thoughts. Number one, as you already said, the production value is, is high. Everyone recognizes that the way it's, it's Malcolm Gladwell esque. that's very high praise in, in weaving together original archival footage and interviews. And Mike is a, is a good narrator in between. So it, it deserves high praise for that. It's very well done. It's riveting. I know when I get relatives and grandparents and people who are asking, when, when's the next one coming out? It, it's hit a, an audience that wouldn't normally 
just listen to a, a a podcast like this. Number two, you talked about stories. I think you're right, Colin. I think we will see many other stories like this. I mean, there somebody's uh, somebody working on um, the Crystal Cathedral and Robert Schuler. Is someone working on Bill Hybels in Willow Creek? There's all sorts. Is someone just going to do something like this more broadly on Reform Resurgence, Young Restless Reform? Your book, well, uh, my book, Colin, but I'll give you credit for it. Uh, <laughs> of course, it was James McDonald. Yes, James yes, McDonald, yes. I know that story. Attributed. <laughs> so I think there will be many others, and some of those stories will be worth telling, and some will be told well, and then some won't. And then third category here, yes, there's a lot of lessons, and maybe when it's wrapped up, you're right, Justin, maybe we see the, the total picture it, worth revisiting on this podcast, some of the lessons from it. Certainly we see... Um, many of the elements of Mars Hill as a cautionary tale, though I think for the most part, I know I, I would, you know, Mike better than, than I do. I don't know if I've met him before, Justin, but for the most part, I think Mike has been trying to be really is trying to be fair with, Hey, a lot of good things happened. And Mark said a lot of, I mean, some of the earlier episodes, there was a few of them. I was, I had to remind myself, well, yeah, the story ends badly because Wow, that was courageous. I'm glad he brought that up. I'm glad he said that. I'm glad he was willing there. And when you were in that moment, especially if you didn't, if you were just, you didn't have a front row seat, you had a a bleacher seat. It you really saw, wow, this. Uh, yeah, there's some bombast, and there's some. I wouldn't say things quite the same way, and there's an edginess. But wow, Mark is saying things that need to be said. And he's saying the right things and he's coming down on the right side of inerrancy and uh, uh, propitiation and all sorts of reform theology. And so it's, it's easy now to want to say who knew what, when, and how could people let this happen? Oh, and, and at times um, he seems really humble to, to learn and to be a part of uh, other people's lives. And you, you don't know everything that's, maybe happening or when there was a change. So I think Mike's done a nice job of trying to present the genuine positives along with many cautionary tales of, uh, uh, you know, poor leadership. And I mean, the, the, the episode that is mo- the hardest to listen to and probably raises the most questions and, and maybe one that we might, I would at least disagree with some of the framing is episode five talking about men's and women's at times. It seems like, the only criticisms were coming from the left and that, hey, is complementarianism really the problem here when there were many critics, especially when the marriage book came out uh, and those talks started coming out, criticisms from the right. But I, I hear what you're saying, Justin, to to let Mike finish what he wants to do and who he wants to talk to. And sometimes it's a product of who's willing to talk to him on the record and record with things. So th- that's the other thing is I... I Sometimes the framing of the issues, I would put a different way, but it is a riveting story. There are many cautionary tales in there. There are also genuine, genuine works. I mean, I have a friend who was there for part of it, and he has a hard time listening to it because his experience was mainly good and what he learned about Jesus and things that were helpful in that context. And then the last thing I say, and this isn't maybe so much a criticism of the podcast as it is just a, a caution for each of us in our human hearts. I know I can feel at times, I I don't, I think there's a place to tell the story. I think there's a place to tell people's private interactions, but it does feel it's right on the the knife's edge for me. Mark Driscoll is still a living human being. Um, He's still doing ministry. I don't know what it's like. I hear things that don't sound good, but he's, he's, he's there and uh, he's a real person and not just a historical artifact. And so um, it, it seems one thing to publicly critique public statements in sermons and books and other things, and not that it's out of place to hear people's private stories and telling what happened. But I just, I, I, I just have more of a caution because I know that, hey, I, I have stories I could share. And you know what? There's people who could share stories about me that look good and don't look as good, hopefully would not look as bad as some of these stories look. But I just want us to be careful in our Christian hearts that there there could be a way 
there could be a way that we're drawn to the story as one is drawn in a worldly sense to any kind of soap opera, to any sort of juicy tidbits about someone's life and about the things that happen. And that's not necessarily wrong. We, we gravitate towards stories and we learn from those stories, but it's just a caution that we don't end up, we, we don't want to foster a sense of gossip or everybody who's got a private story to tell Let's hear. Am I being overly sensitive to that caution? Well, one, I mean, I think that's an, it's another topic that we could do a whole episode on. And um, I wonder if that distinction that you make between a living person and subject and a dead person actually is a legitimate distinction. In other words, why is it okay? I've read some stuff about Abraham Lincoln that Abraham Lincoln would be mortified that anybody passed along. And I don't know if it's 100% true, but somebody said it back in the 1820s or whatever. Um, you know, is, why is that okay, but it's not okay to say private stuff now? Or should we use more discretion even in our historical work? I think it's a really tricky subject to think through. Uh, I, well, to I clarify... With- Oh, I was just going to say, I wasn't, um, that's a good point. And I, I wasn't saying that if someone dies, then you can say private thing. My, my point in March in mentioning that Mark is the living person was just to give us, um, just to give us some, some heart level pause that we're, we're we are talking about a, a real human being who professes faith in Christ for whatever massive flaws that we can point out it just it, it it's easy to think that's that's not a real person so that's all i was saying about that that mark driscoll is not just the the fulfillment of all that is went wrong for a period of time in evangelicalism but is a real person with a wife and and kids and and a, a human being so that's one issue and then yeah the secondary issue is yeah when when do we do the the public in private. So go ahead, Justin. No, that's a, it's an important reminder. And how to think through all of that, I think, is just complicated because I think I can imagine people listening to this and thinking, well, that's precisely the way in which abuse thrives is because people don't talk about what they experience in private. So I think there's a legitimate point there. And we do need to think through. I, I'll just say from my own heart, uh, I've have to thank God for people who are exposing abuse. Um, you know, it has kind of lurked beneath the surfaces and been uh, covered up in the past. And there are people who are working diligently to bring the evil to light of day. And yet my, I can find my own heart drawn towards things that obviously seem like gossip and uh, that my heart is more inclined to read about what some pastor did terribly than what some pastor did well. And so that's, for me, it's a heart issue. And probably all of us need to think through what are we inclined towards? What are we, you know, what gets our juices flowing to some degree? Um, yeah, that's I, don't, what, I don't have it solved. Well, that's what I was going to say, Justin, was I don't know about the living or dead distinction, um, but I, I would just, we know that this is getting a lot of attention because it's like a car crash. It's just, it's so mangled and horrific. You just, you can't turn away. And so if we want to say this podcast is good and necessary because it's going to help root out abuse in the church, well, I can certainly see God using it to do that. And I'll give thanks for that. We've, we've been in a situation where so many of, of us, I can see myself in this at least, have tolerated Christian leaders who don't show basic qualifications for leadership that God lays out in scripture. So if it has that effect, then I'm grateful. I could also say that if what we need is a podcast to be able to help us to root out abuse or to show how to avoid that, I could also say I could introduce people to dozens, we all could, dozens and dozens and dozens and dozens of pastors who would be positive examples of how to not do this. But see, of course, that would never get any attention. So you really can't separate the car crash element of this from the lesson from it. And that's just, I don't know if that's our human hearts, our media ecosystem. I'm not really sure. 
but that's what it is right now. I, I, I don't think we're disagreeing, Justin. I just want to clarify again, lest somebody hear me saying, uh, yeah, uh, abuse victims shouldn't speak out. That that's that's not at all what I'm saying. I'm not saying that in life, nor am I saying that in this podcast. And just like uh, you know, a good journalist would spend months or years in uncovering a story and talk to victims and get their story and and things that. So it, it it's not that private things are off limits for public knowledge. Um, what I want to say is. I guess I put it like this. I think I'll put it very personally, practically. Um, I've thought, well, no one reached out to me. I'm not a, I mean, I was in for some of this, but I, I, I don't need to, I'm not a necessary voice in this podcast. But I think what if someone said, would you want to come on? And do you have any Mark Driscoll stories? I think Mike's doing it better than that. I'm sure. But if that, that was it, I would think, well, yeah, I, I could, I could share a couple stories and uh, I could give you my three or four anecdotes. And um, in my, I, I don't know that that would be appropriate or would be helpful or would be the best way. Just every, it, anybody got a story about hanging out with Mark Driscoll and something he said in particular, something that was bad or th- that's what I'm saying is uh, I think a danger lurking, in the human heart when you do something that, that is focused and could become just an opportunity for. So uh, most of the, the, the podcast isn't like that, but there've been a time or two where there's a long story about, it's like, well, yeah, I, that, that seems pretty, pretty bad and puts him in a bad light. And I just find myself, Hey, give me more of those stories. And there's something in my heart that I want to be cautious about when I start getting that feeling. Yeah, well, last said. word on that. No, I'll let you have the last word. Good word. All right. As we wrap up life and books and everything, we haven't talked about books. So, uh, were you guys able to read some books over the summer? I know you're both working. Well, all of us were working on some different writing projects and that maybe took up a lot of their time, but Colin, give us, a few books yep. from this summer. So I know we've talked about this before, but I want to encourage people again that audiobooks are a major <laughs> secret that can help you with your reading. I know some people don't think of it that way, and if, and I do a lot of reading um, that's not audiobooks, but I have been in a season of the most intense writing of my life and it's 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 been it's been something and so audiobooks have been a real blessing during that time and so uh, one audiobook that i appreciated was andrew roberts churchill walking with destiny which we've talked about on this podcast before so spent this summer that's an 1100 page book it's a 30 plus no maybe 50 hour maybe i think it's a 50 hour audiobook um but yeah that's but that was that was great um it's everybody says it's great it is great um second two books that i that i did read and that hopefully uh i'll I'll be able to to talk about in my gospel bound podcast but one of them is jeff jeffrey bilbros reading the times a literary and theological inquiry into the news if listeners out there have appreciated some of the comments that we often discuss media and our interaction with media including podcasts here Bill Bro is doing that really well from that perspective. One of the best books I've read in a long time that directly relates to uh, to my vocation and all of our consumption and use of of media in this in this um, time. So that was that was that was great. And then uh, next month I'll be interviewing former uh, Tennessee Governor Bill Haslam about his book Faithful Presence: The Promise and the Peril of Faith in the Public Square. Uh, really appreciated him when he was in office. Um, and was very popular and successful in office. And as far as I know, is a member of a PCA congregation, if I remember correctly, Kevin. But um, you know, you'll you'll re- you'll recognize Faithful Presence from James Davison Hunter's work uh, to change the world from 2010. But um, this book is a it's coming full circle to what we talked about of discouragement, uh, confusion in politics, 
it's helpful to see a devout Christian reflect in very thoughtful ways about how to lead uh, through elected office. So three three books I really enjoyed reading and then one I listened to over the summer. It's good. Justin, what have you been reading? Yeah, I haven't read this summer, so... I'm just kidding. <laughs> he didn't. Watch, he didn't Olympics. watch the Olympics. He hates baseball. He didn't read. I don't know how we're friends, yeah. but it's all tears <laughs> all the time. So I, I was able to get into a few books. Um, I'm reading multiple books at once, dipping here and there. Um, at a spiritual level, Brian Chapel's book, "The Gospel According to Daniel: A Christ-Centered Approach." I was kind of surprised when I picked it up and realized I had a blurb on the back of it. But it's time to reread the whole thing. Um, <laughs> <laughs> Paul House has a Tyndale commentary on the Old Test on uh, the Book of Daniel, uh, replacing Joyce Baldwin's, and Christopher Wright has a commentary. Christopher Wright is a really good writer. Um, I don't follow all of his stuff on mission, but his books on the Old Testament, if you ever pick them up, are really good. And they started as sermons. Uh, he's a bona fide Old Testament scholar, uh, but has a sermonic touch as well. So Daniel's one of those books, I, I get the big picture of what's going on as it gets into later chapters and gets more eschatological in terms of prophecies. Uh, I, I couldn't defend uh, the amillennial view, which I hold. So I just want to, um, in terms of spiritual work, uh, work through Daniel. Crossway has just republished, you guys have probably noticed this, uh, several uh, books by John, uh, by J.I. Packer, also by Francis Schaeffer. And what we've been doing there is, uh, taking books that are published by other publishers that are in paperback and licensing hardcover editions to them, doing it in the Crossway typesetting with Crossway hardcovers with jackets. So uh, on vacation, I brought Keeping Step with the Spirit by Packer, which uh, really like Mark Jones' description on the back where he calls it uh, polemically irenic. Um, he says, seeking to promote peace in the church, Packer also desire purity. In this book, he offers an argument against certain opinions of the spirit with a greater goal in mind, the peace of God's people as they share a unified understanding of the Holy Spirit's work. If his irenicism is the end, his polemics are the means. Uh, Mark Dever blurbed the book too, but it's, it's fascinating to go through and watch how Packer argues, you know, enumerating the things that the charismatics get right, that they that they do better than uh, the reformed, more traditionalist, and uh, then showing what's deficient, and then kind of proposing, we could call it a third way to move forward. Um, I, it also strikes me, reading Packer, all of the comments about evangelicalism and how partisan it is, and the, the closing of the evangelical mind, and uh, how deficient it is. I mean, if 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 anyone else follows the same sort of Twitter accounts that we do, it's a constant theme. But then I read Packard and think, this is evangelicalism. This is evangelicalism kind of at its best. And Packard just doesn't fit any of those caricatures. So it's good to work through some of the charismatic issues um, with Packard as a guide. Uh, another book I bought on vacation, uh, an author that I enjoy reading, Hampton Sides. In the Kingdom of Ice, the Grand and Terrible Polar Voyage of the USS Jeanette. Uh, I read that one. Read yeah. that one, I think, earlier this year. Hampton Sides wrote one of my favorite books uh, on the assassination of Martin Luther King. Uh, and he's just a master of the narrative nonfiction form. And Candace Millard, who uh, also is a good author of that, in her blurb, she says, as soon as I finished the book, I flipped to the first page and began reading again. So that kind of book, which is high mm. praise, obviously. And the last book that I've started to dip into is by Michael Ward, who, of course, did the uh, groundbreaking work on C.S. Lewis and uh, Narnia books and the planets and the deeper meaning there. Uh, his published After Humanity, a guide to C.S. Lewis's The Abolition of Man. And of long... Uh, concurred with the belief that Abolition of Man is uh, a classic of 20th century natural law, uh, concisely done, uh, a profound work, and the sort of work that it's really helpful to have a guide to uh, help you see the philosophical underpinnings and the sort of things that Lewis assumed. So I'm eager to get into Michael Ward's book. And the publisher published uh, a little version of Abolition of Man to go along with it. So you can 
read the original classic and read Ward's guide to it as well. For the first time this year, I guess a hat tip to, doesn't Andrew Wilson do this, but I'm keeping a list of all the books that I'm reading this year. I don't know if I'll publish it at the end of the year or not, if that serves people or not. Of course, I read books in different ways. We've talked about that before, some very carefully, some quickly to get the the gist of it. Sometimes they'll say, here's a big book. I'm going to give it two hours. I'm going to get as much as I can. And then other times it's a it's your companion for many months as I was reading through the two volumes on Princeton Seminary from David Calhoun. But uh, I finished a number of books. I started some others, but I'll limit myself to just three from this summer. One, this is a book I had read years ago. It's a little book. I, I picked it up again. Stephen Osmond, who is a very well-respected historian from Harvard. He has a little book, Ancestors, the Loving Family of Old Europe, which was in some ways, it was a, do, a new work, but it, it was in some ways a distillation of a work he had published in the 80s with the, uh, with the auspicious title, When Fathers Ruled. And it was about basically about life and marriage and family life in pre-Reformation and Reformation Europe. Well, this is a shorter version, Ancestors, the Loving Family in Old Europe. It's just fascinating because he, here's a top-notch historian looking at primary sources, and you know he has woodcuts, he has uh, you know some old illustrations. It's really fascinating to see, oh, here's an illustration from Germany in the 16th century of a pregnant woman, and they label all the things that happens to a pregnant woman. Or here's a manual of child rearing. And you just, you see things that are very much the same, then you see things that look really different. But one of the themes in Osmond's work on family and marriage in 15th, 16th century Europe was to push against some of the scholarship that basically said uh, it was just unremitting horrors and stark authoritarianism. And he's trying to trying to say um, they were more like us in some ways and, and unlike us in other ways. So really fascinating. And maybe I'll um, maybe we'll bring that in a topic. I've been reading just as maybe future thoughts percolating on book ideas years down the line. I've just been reading a lot about family life, about marriage, about uh, both current and historical. So that was an interesting book. Another history book, Gary Stewart. You know Gary, right, Justin? From uh, your time at Bethlehem? Yep. We were uh, classmates together at Bethlehem in 1998. So this is his published dissertation. I think I had read the dissertation or looked through it briefly when I was working on my PhD, but now it's published. Um I don't have it right in front of me if it's Oxford or Cambridge, but congratulations, Gary. It's called Justifying Revolution, American Clergy's Argument for Public Resistance. It was basically, what, what was the Christian argument for revolution in the colonies? And so it's a, it's a published dissertation, so it, it's thick and it's footnote, but it's not that long. And it's, it's really helpful to think about... it. it, it and I guess I'm partial to it because maybe I'm a, a small part of this project, along with Paul Helseth and a number of other people who are trying to push back against what some of the older historiography said, namely that the Christian support for America and for the new republic and for revolution was a capitulation to Enlightenment ideas or was really selling out their reformed birthright for republicanism. And Stewart's book does a good job saying, well, whether we ag you agree with him or not, there were careful Christian theological arguments to justify the colonists' revolution. And so he has five or six different chapters looking at different people. And so I, I found that very interesting. And then a book I blogged about earlier in the summer, Heralds of God by James S. Stewart. So he's a Church of Scotland minister. He wrote this book, I think, in the 40s. And the discerning reader will will wonder, hmm, I wonder what where he was theologically on a few things. But put that aside, it's, uh, as a preacher, I love, I try to read each summer a, a book on preaching. Sometimes I'll go back to Lloyd-Jones preaching and preachers. But this is one I hadn't read before. I had heard Alistair Begg recommend it. And I, I found it very invigorating 
for the for the pastoral preaching task. And that's one of my goals with whatever writing I have each summer is to come back and feel re-energized and reinvigorated mm-hmm. for preaching. And so I blogged about that earlier in the summer because I think one of the the great struggles we face as pastors is it can feel like intellectually we know preaching matters and yet it feels like well blogging matters, podcasts matter, Twitter matters, books matter, conferences matter, hot takes matter. Who's shaping people? Who who's who are our people talking about during the week? They're talking about an article that they read from this place or that or they're talking about a, and hopefully we're not part of the problem. So all of those things can be good, but it can feel like as a pastor is the task of preaching does that really I know the answer, but does it really work? Does it really matter? And so I I found that book helpful, some practical things, but more just at a heart level. And one of the things that's uh, humbling and encouraging at the same time, it's been like this for years. When I come back from my summer study break, people invariably say, I, I always make sure that I'm, I'm there the very first Sunday that we, we plan our vacation so we can be back the first Sunday you're back. And it's not because of me, but they'll say, that's going to be maybe your best sermon of the year <laughs> because you've had rest, you're fresh, you're reinvigorated, there's a new energy and so that's encouraging. It's also humbling. And it's good for those of us who are pastors and preachers to realize sometimes we get more worn down and than we than we realize. So lots of other books that we can talk about. But Justin and Colin, very good to be with you again. Looking forward in the weeks ahead. Um, I have an interview with uh, Jim Neuheiser in our next episode, Lord willing, and uh, who's a teaches counseling at RTS and going to talk to him about abuse. So that will be a good conversation. We're trying to line up some other interviews throughout the fall. And of course, the three of us will be together. So thank you. Good to be with you, friends. And uh, for our listeners, glorify God and join forever. And until then, read a good book. Mm-hmm.